Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. It's Sunday evening, and welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Your hosts for tonight's show are Robert Brining and Jeremy Dunn. They'll be taking your calls and speaking on the topic of the week. You're encouraged to call in and share some of your life experiences with us. The number to call is 347-215-9442. That number again, 347-215-9442. Welcome to Pause I Am Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Pause I Am Radio. I am your host, Robert Brining, joined by my co-host this evening, Jeremy Dunn. Jeremy, how are you? Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. It's Oscar night, Yay, and I'm so Sunday. glad that people are, like, skipping the Oscars to hear us. And I promise you, when the music does play, we will stop talking. <laughs> that's, that's our promise to you. So. Yes, it is. Yeah, we, we always get screwed with the awards on Sunday nights, it seems. Yes, we do. <laughs> but we have our fans. That's what matters. That's right. We we have all three of them. I, oh, wait. No, we have more. They're growing. <laughs> They're growing. We've got eight now. Woo-hoo. Um, <laughs> so, golly, um, lots of things going on. Should I should I start? Yes, yes. Tell us. Tell us. What's going on in, in, in Jeremy's world? Well, in Jeremy's world, we are monitoring because, you know, the the whole midterm elections elected a bunch of um, Republicans into office. And, you know, some of my good friends are Republicans, but I don't admit that in public. But um, the budgeting issues that are going along, you know, people are saying, well, too much, you know, cut the government spending, you know, and make government fit in all of that jazz. Well, I was read I just saw a couple of articles that came through today. The Republicans in the North Carolina um state assembly are looking to take our ADAP funding back to 2007-2008 spending levels. And um and uh it, that would ultimately take money away from people who are currently on in, in and would take money away from people who are currently in the program and it would also take away um it was it was it will also take away from uh and add the add to the add to the waiting list so it it's it's becoming apparent that um the republicans that were voted in to Office are quite frankly um, waging war on on the American people who voted them in. That's right, because you have one of the um, you know one of the the larger eight after waiting lists, I believe. Um, uh, we're at 128 now. Wow. So. And they're going to cut and possibly put more people on the waiting list, or more people off of eight after onto the waiting list. Um, it would put more people onto a waiting list, and it would eliminate some people's um, – and it would eliminate uh, many people who are already on the program. It would eliminate their – it would eliminate them from the program because what they've done is they went from 300% of the poverty level up to 125%. So you have to make much more money – follow me here – you have to make more money – <laughs> to get onto this program. Wow, that doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, that seems that backwards. It is. It's very interesting. See, I'm lucky to live in Pennsylvania where right now we don't have any kind of a waiting list. Um, and I'm just thankful to, to live in a state to where if I need to go and receive aid after the special pharmaceutical benefits, 
I'm able to do that. And I can't imagine living in a state like Florida, which we discussed before where we had the ADAPT Crisis Summit, how to, to, to live in, in a state where you're not supported by the government. And that would just really upset me. Like, nobody, everybody deserves a chance to live a, a full life. And the, the expenses of medication should not determine how productive and how full of a life somebody lives. You got it. So, you know, those of you and those of us, I should say, who have medical insurance, um, hold on to that because and and try to keep it um, try to keep it close to your close to your heart because it it may not be there for long. Very very true. Um, it, it's, it's important for, for people living with HIV to get some sort of um, benefits or some sort of, or, or of help to, to afford these medications. As people who may be listening who may not be HIV positive or don't live um, with HIV don't know what it's like to have to pay thousands of dollars a month just to take medication that you're going to get these horrific side effects from. Um, right. It, it, just people don't understand that it's not about you know, me getting HIV so I can go on some sort of plan and I'm getting money from the government. It's about me just getting my medications. It's not about me, you know, finding a way to pay my electric bill or finding a way for me to pay my rent. It's, a, it's really about getting medications and saving, and that's the, you know, importance of ADAPT and why people like Brandon Moxada, who, you know, runs ADAPT Advocacy Association, put that PSA together that was just released about, I want to say, maybe a month ago. Um, and, and why it's so important to, for people to, to realize that it's not a handout from the government. It's about living a productive life, and it's so important that we all do that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, it, what, what's really difficult, I think, is, and what's really disheartening, is that the majority in the assembly, um, there's one guy in particular, Larry Brown, who thinks that, we shouldn't be paying for um uh we shouldn't be paying for uh adults with HIV at all. So at all. we're like not medication, nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And here's the frightening part. Not only is he saying it, but he's not being challenged and he's not being um contested. So that's that's the disheartening and the dangerous part of all of this. It's kind of hard to, you know, when you sit back and look at it, somebody who, as myself, as somebody before I was diagnosed HIV positive, I had a lot of different thoughts and a lot of different views on how I viewed HIV and HIV positive people. So, um, I don't know, in some kind of weird, strange way, I can understand um, how somebody would think like that. But I think at, you're saying this is a government official, right? This is a senator. This is this is an right, elected. Okay, so this isn't some some person who just doesn't know anybody with HIV. This is somebody who was elected into this position, who yep. at least the people in his general area who are HIV positive should be contacting him and letting them know that you know this isn't a choice. This isn't something that we chose to do. We're not looking for handouts, kind of like we said earlier. It, it's about living a productive life. Exactly. And, and it's it's ridiculous. It, it, it's it's scary. It's it makes me mad. <laughs> so so it, oh, it, it just it it just makes me really really angry. Um, but uh, so so there's. I, I think we've got some organizing to do here, especially in North Carolina, and then uh, we've got. Of course, the on the national spotlight, the national stage. We've got to get back to um, get back to what it is we actually believe in and what we fought for, you know, in the mid '80s, early '90s, and and get back to that again. I mean, it's it, it, we we have to we have to start. You know, if we all marched on Washington, I mean, how powerful that would be. Um, but just trying to find the people to do it, you know? Right, that's one of the us. things um oh, sorry, Jeremy. That's one of the things that I just saw posted on on the Pause I Am Network was that they were talking about 
how they wanted to kind of form. Uh, actually, George, who's our guest uh, next weekend, is going to uh, trying to organize a, a million man march to come to Washington D.C. to bring this back to the front line, so people realize that. Yes, people are living longer with HIV, but this is still a serious medical condition, and, and, and people are suffering, and people need to realize that, you know, this is still going on. It's not something that should be swept under the rug, and it's really important. So um, George is going to be talking about that next week. Uh, I see our guest this evening on, on the line, so let me go ahead and bring him on. Our guest this evening is, is Sean Strube, who is the founder um, of Pause Magazine, who a lot of people may know. Uh, you can find information on the magazine at pause.com. And, and he is somebody who has just been out there um, and really put a face to this disease, you know, back in the day when it was always a death sentence. And I listened to a, an interview that he did uh, with our friend Nate from the Pause Cruises, and, and he talked about how, you know, he, he wanted to create this magazine because everything he read was about dying, and everybody was dying, and he, he, there's no hope. And, and what he did was he created this magazine to offer hope to those living with HIV and AIDS, and I think it's great. I applaud him, and I think that he really led the way, paved the way for a lot of people, you know, Jeremy, like ourselves, to come out and open up about it. So please help me welcome Sean Stroop to the show. Sean, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Robert. Nice to talk to you. Uh, it's nice to talk to you again. I know we talked briefly um, when uh, Dr. Sonnabin was coming into the ADAPT Advocacy Association Summit, um, so it's nice to, to finally get you onto the show. Uh, we're big fans. Oh well, thanks. Thank you very much. I, I you know, Sean, this is Jeremy Dunn. Um, I actually we chatted back and forth on Facebook, but it's actually kind of nice to um, throw this out there and say you're like a god to me. So I worship you and the things that you've done. So <laughs> let's make it clear to your viewers that, that you really don't know me very well. I don't know him at all, but he is like a god to me, you know. Oh, well, Olympus was made much. up of many different types of gods. There was that Hades guy, you know. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter what – you don't have to be godlike in the sense that we think of, but you're like a god to me. I mean, you, you gave me um, an avenue, and, and I'm just going to get this out, done, and over with. Then we can get to, the, like, the meat of the, of the, of the conversation. But um, – Picking up a, a, a copy of Paws Magazine when I was first newly diagnosed gave me the lifeline that I think I needed to kickstart, to give me a swift kick in the butt and realize that it isn't all doom and gloom. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you. That was the, the that was the main purpose in starting the magazine. So it's always gratifying to meet someone on whom it had such an effect. It really did. And I get mine every month. I still read it. Good. More, many more people read it online now. Since I sold the company a few years ago, and they've really done a fantastic job of expanding the website, so it gets a tremendous, tremendous amount of traffic. I think something like three-quarters of the people in the U.S. who know they have HIV hit that website or read the magazine every month, which oh, yeah. is pretty impressive reach. That, that's awesome. And those who would normally, who are in the rural areas, who wouldn't be comfortable by getting a magazine showing up in their mailbox. That's, that is absolutely true. You know, so the, I think the online presence really gave, it, it really reached out to those who were too, maybe too afraid to um, get it in print. So, so yeah, that's true. I remember um, one of my friends, uh, Mike, was like my, the first person in my group of friends who was diagnosed HIV positive, and I remember when he would get the magazine, it would, um, and sometimes it still comes covered in, in the black uh, cover to, you know, to be just discreet about the whole issue, and I remember thinking, wow, I could never imagine trying to get a magazine and being so discreet about it. I couldn't put myself in that situation, and then years later, now I'm in that situation where I get the magazine that comes in the mail to me, you know what I mean, and I just think, like, kind of to say what kind of mimic off of Jeremy is what you did was you allowed people living with HIV to have hope for the first time. And I think that's well, that something was, that... Go ahead. Well, from, I mean, from the very first days of the epidemic, what gave people with HIV hope was meeting other people with HIV, you know, meeting people mm -hmm. who had sort of were dealing with their diagnosis and going on, you know, with, with their lives. Um, and that, you know, was on a one-on-one -on -one basis long before pause. I mean, that was really from the very first days, you know, when I knew 
Michael Callan and Griff Gold, Michael Hirsch, and some of those very early guys with the People with AIDS Coalition in New York. But by the time, you know, by the early 90s, every time the epidemic was referenced in the media, in the mainstream media, and I really mean like virtually every single time, you know, well over 90%, it was bracketed with death sentence language, inevitably fatal, 100% terminal, no cure, uh, you know, uh, uh, no survivors. And and that's what you're, I think, referencing in my conversation with Nate the other day, um, was that the media and the sort of the general culture had taken away the possibility of survival from people with HIV. And while I, you know, like so many people, had tremendous loss in my life and was certainly, you know, seeing a, um, you know, a devastation that is difficult to describe to those who didn't go through it, uh, I also witnessed... Uh, really profound vitality, you know, people who had received this diagnosis that was, you know, a very, uh, you know, daunting one in those days, you know, much more so than today, yet they still were continuing with their lives. They were falling in love and breaking up and getting fired and getting promoted and starting businesses and, um, uh, and you know, and really in, in many ways even leading lives that were more vital because they really understood the how precious life was, how little time some of us had, and how important it was to make the most of, of every moment. So the idea with pause was to, was to reflect that reality, the reality that I saw in my life. Yes, people who were sick and were dying, but also people who were, were living lives with incredible vitality and dignity you know, for as long and as much as they could and really give people back that possibility of survival to show them the example that, you know, every... Every moment we're still breathing, we're surviving. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I kid a lot when somebody says, well, how are you? And I said, I'm great because my feet hit the floor today. You know, but, right. you know, you know it, it, I, I jokingly say that, but it, it, it's true. You know, when my feet hit the floor in the morning, I know it's going to be a great day, no matter what's being thrown at me. But because with – when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed with full-blown AIDS and the whole nine yards, and, and I had, I think, 40 T-cells, and it's like, well, how does that happen in this day and age, right? But right. every morning, it's it's a blessing because it's I know where I'm going, I know where I'm headed, and I have goals in, in I each day. And where am I going with this because I'm rambling now? Um, <laughs> thank God it's radio so you don't see what I look like. Um so, but again, it, it's thank you know always being thankful for what we've got, and and I think having pause um, so early on. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the magazine was first published in the early '90s, mid '90s. Uh, the first issue came out in early 1994. Um, okay. Before that, I had been publishing a, a treatment newsletter, the first sort of treatment newsletter oriented towards consumers other than one that uh, ACT UP had started. And um, and before that, you know, I, I would just go to meetings in New York at the People with AIDS Coalition or at ACT UP or wherever and gather materials. You know, the ACT UP meetings, people used to write out their own experience. I found this spot. I went to my doctor. He said this. Or I took this treatment, I'm trying, you know, Brazilian tree algae extract or whatever, and this is what it did or didn't do for me, as well as news clippings and brochures and information. And it would be on a table at the back of the room, and everyone as they came in would go through that table and pick up whatever interested them. And I used to make a little stack and would take it back and uh, fax it to friends around the country or uh, and then later started Xeroxing it and putting it in little packets and sending it to people because not everyone had that luxury of, you know, living um, uh, so close to so much information and activism. And it was, you know, really clear early on, uh, even when there was, you know, so little prospect for survival, uh, that those who were getting the best information and the most information were the ones who were living the longest, that access to information really did translate into survival, which is one reason, you know, we used to say that activists live longer, and um, and I really think that there is something to that. I think that, uh, and that's in the broad definition of activist. You know, activism isn't just you know 
getting arrested or committing civil disobedience. It's really about being informed as well. And those who exercise that kind of control and, 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 uh, and curiosity and interest in their lives and their treatment um, have done better over the years. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I mean, we, we, so I'm going to be jumping way ahead. We're going to hit the fast-forward button a little bit. From 1994 to today, to right now, right this minute, tell tell us about the changes that you've seen um, for the good, for the not so good, and and where do you and and Sean's prediction for the next 20 years? Good lord. Okay. Well, I mean, the, the most obvious change for the good is the introduction of combination therapy in 1996 and how that has enabled so many of us to, to you know, uh, live lives that are uh, something closer to, you know, what normal might have been for us had the epidemic not hit. Um, and that is, you know, I mean, that is really huge. It's just it's, you, you can't, um, you really can't overestimate, you know, what that means to people who are, leading lives and not expecting to be alive, you know, a few months from now or a year from now to, um, uh, 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 you know, to the renewed help they found. So that's the, the, the biggest, single biggest change. The epidemic has also become increasingly institutionalized. It has settled um, sort of further into uh, communities of color and communities of poverty. Uh, it has become invisible to a lot uh, many parts of the, the most privileged parts of our culture who were so focused on the epidemic at one time. And uh, as it, um, uh, you know, settled into communities of color and, and, and to, it, 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 you know, the, the racism that's inherent in the culture became much more evident and, and people just plain didn't care as much. Um, a lot of the activists themselves were either dead or burnt out or um, their energy had been directed elsewhere. I know after my health came back, you know, I really had to take a few years off. You know, my life was very different then. So there are all sorts of ways, you know, the, the AIDS epidemic has pioneered changes in, in every aspect of our society and culture from the way research is done to how drugs are approved to how we, you know, think and talk about sexuality and, you know, really intimate matters. And, uh, and so that change is continuing. I think that looking forward, um, um, the, some of the areas that interest me the most are really around this creation of a viral underclass. You know, you sometimes hear people talk about, you know, the LGBT movement is the last great civil rights struggle or something like that, you know. Uh, and, of course, that's just not true in any case. But I always point out to them, look around you. Right now we are creating new ways to oppress people by the creation of a, a set of laws that are specific to people with HIV, that treat people with HIV differently than how they treat people who do not have HIV. Um, to me, this is the most extreme manifestation of stigma when the government uh, creates laws that are different for one group of citizens than for another, like Jim Crow laws or apartheid laws. And I think that the sort of slicing and dicing of the population based on the diseases they carry or the viruses they carry is something we are going to see more of. And I think it's going to become an epic struggle for, um, uh, for people who are concerned about human rights and about treating people equally that will extend far beyond HIV. Um, and so that's why one of the areas that I've really been focusing on is combating these HIV criminalization statutes and, uh, and what they mean, not just for the epidemic, because I think they're contributing to fueling the epidemic, but also for what they mean um, for all people who care about uh, about individual rights and freedoms um, because of the prospect of them, and I think very likely prospect of these statutes uh, extending beyond uh, HIV, as they already have in some states. Hmm. Well, I agree. That's one of the one of the subjects that we we talk about a lot on the show is the HIV criminalization and how it's different from state to state and how you always hear about whenever you hear about HIV on the news or in the media, it's always about some guy who spit on somebody who's going to jail or some guy who's purposely infecting somebody who's not, you know, living as a positive role model and 
it's frustrating. So, you know, I, I agree that there should be some sort of way to fix this that we can still have laws for people who are purposely infecting people but not to risk and, and to discriminate against every person who's living with HIV. And a lot of the laws seem to do that because it's not about disclosure. I mean, it's not about transmission. It's more about not disclosing to people when it comes to these ones that hit the headlines. Right. Transmission, HIV transmission is rarely a factor in these cases. Uh, you're absolutely correct that it is mostly about failing to disclose one's uh, HIV status prior to having intimate contact. But a couple of things to understand. First of all, um, to change anything around this, we really need to talk about this issue a lot. And starting with talking in our own community, as we're doing, as we're doing right here, because research that came out last summer showed that about two-thirds of gay men, of gay men, uh, when asked, said that they supported HIV criminalization. They thought that people who failed to disclose should be put into jail. Um, and so when we have that kind of, of mindset within the community, it really illustrates the daunting task we have ahead of us. However, I find that when people give this just a little bit of thought, very, very quickly those numbers change. That I know all sorts of people who a year or two ago would have said they supported HIV criminalization. Now they're looking at it quite differently. And let me just sort of, if it's okay, tick off a couple of the reasons why. Um, first of all, I think that when people say they support this, the question they're answering in their heads is, should someone with HIV disclose factors that might put another person at risk, health factors that could put another person at risk? And the answer is, of course they should. You know, that's ethically and morally, that's very clear. You know, no one should go into a sexual contact knowing they're going to potentially put someone at risk without, without some level of disclosure. That's been a fundamental part of the people with HIV empowerment movement since the Denver Principles was written in 1983. It's, it's in that document. However, a moral and ethical obligation is one thing uh, that is also uh, related to a person's ability to, to disclose and safety and disclosing and all sorts of other factors around that. Making it a criminal offense is another. Uh, first of all, uh, it undercuts the very basic message about uh, HIV prevention and, and sexual health in general, which is that every person must ultimately be responsible for their own sexual health. Uh, these statutes imply a disproportionate responsibility. They say some of you have more responsibility than others which creates an illusion of safety for people who are negative or don't know their status. And it values that illusion of safety, and it is an illusion, as we all know, and it values that illusion over the privacy rights of people with HIV. Uh, secondly, these laws are a tremendous and growing disincentive to people getting tested for HIV, to people accessing treatment, and to people disclosing it. Um, first of all, if one does not know one is HIV positive, then one cannot be prosecuted under these statutes. So it's become take the test and risk arrest, which is a very dangerous message because we want people to know their HIV status because we know that people who know their status and are positive uh, are much more responsible uh, and safe in their sexual behaviors than people who are positive and don't know it. So these statutes are discouraging people from getting tested. And when the most difficult demographic to get tested are young African-American men who have sex with men, uh, a large percentage of whom have already had an unpleasant interaction with the criminal justice system, um, uh, you know, and they're feeling fine otherwise, it makes it that much more difficult uh, for them to learn their HIV status when they, when they fear taking on this additional legal burden of liability of potentially being prosecuted. Um, thirdly, these statutes are... Uh, irrational in that they single out HIV. Um, there are all sorts of viral and other pathogens that can be passed between people sexually that can harm another person, and including, if left untreated, like HIV, lead to death. 4,000 women in the U.S. last year died of cervical cancer. Every single one of them got it from human papillomavirus, HPV, genital warts. Uh, but we don't criminalize failure to disclose one has genital warts, HPV, prior to sexual contact, because uh, HPV is not associated with an outlaw sexuality the way HIV is with anal sex and with same-sex uh, 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 relationships. Uh, 
Uh, it also, uh, we couldn't build the prisons large enough because about 70% of the sexually active adult population carries HPV at some point. Uh, and it isn't just HPV, you know, hepatitis and uh, C and all sorts of other things. But we single out HIV. Um, then the sentencing in these cases is vastly disproportionate to any harm that uh, may or may not have actually occurred. Um, uh, first of all, before I get to the sentencing, the Center for HIV Law and Policy, an organization I strongly support and work with, uh, released a report a few weeks ago and showed that in the last several years, a quarter of the HIV criminalization prosecutions were for behavior that there's no chance of uh, transmitting HIV, things like spitting and biting. Um, and in those cases, as well as in others, where people are using condoms and have an undetectable viral load and, you know, and there's virtually no chance of, of transmission, they're getting tremendously uh, uh, cruel and inhumane sentences. Um, there's a man in Texas, Willie Campbell, serving 35 years right now for having spit at a cop. Um, a young man in Iowa uh, was sentenced to – a young man in Iowa met a guy online, goes over to the guy's house. Um, the young man is, is – uh, positive that has been undetectable. Uh, they have sex, and the positive guy uses a condom. Uh, he did not ejaculate either. Uh, this is all agreed to by both parties. Condom was used, no ejaculation. He uh, was undetectable. Um, but his partner uh, claims that the person didn't tell him he was positive. He went to the local prosecutor. Uh, the person was charged, and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. 25 years in prison. He was undetectable. He wore a condom. He did not ejaculate. And, of course, there was no transmission. There wouldn't be. Um, now, fortunately, after about a year, we were able to get him out of jail. Um, but for five years, he's restricted to his home county. He's subject to wearing an ankle bracelet. Fortunately, they haven't put it on him yet, but, but they may at any time. He cannot be around children because he's required to be a registered sex offender. He has to agree to have his computer in his home searched at any time with, without, uh, without notice. Uh, several times a year he has to take lie detector tests uh, from the state and detail every sexual contact. He's forbidden, by the way, from, from having casual sex, whatever that means. He can't visit social networking sites, not even like Facebook and things like that, and of course he can't look at porn. Uh, and he has to detail every sexual contact and answer a series of questions ranging from are you uh, attracted to children? Are you attracted to wearing women's clothing? Um, are you attracted to animals? Which he points out happens to be legal in Iowa, but they still ask the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> and for the rest of his life, he has to register as a sex offender. Now, this person is someone of unusual character and strength, and he is struggling to get through this, and I really think that he's going to, but his life I, I don't want to say that it's been destroyed because I think anything that happens in anyone's life, there is a way to, to struggle, struggle back from it. But it has been inaudibly changed forever. Um, and the most difficult thing is getting a career back on track. He's working a minimum wage job. You know, people don't like to hire people who are on sex offender registries, you know, particularly since they're so accessible. Anybody can go on the computer and punch in a zip code and they say, Oh, you know, the guy working at the McDonald's, he's a sex offender. You know, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to take my kid there. And, of course, this was for behavior between two gay men, two consenting adults, um, that posed no risk of HIV transmission. Now, that is in some ways an extreme case, and in other ways it isn't. You know, there are now hundreds of these prosecutions. Many of them, um, um, a large percentage of them, pose no risk of, of transmission. Many of them are cases where condoms were used and so on. And the sentencing is bizarre. You know, uh, the, the sentencing for you know, uh, you know, people who commit a vehicular homicide and kill people, you know, drunk behind the wheel of a car, uh, get much less sentences than, than people who fail to disclose and there's no risk and they don't transmit HIV. Uh, in some cases, some states, the, the sentencing for things like rape and so on is less than it is in these HIV criminalization cases. So this is something that is, um, you know, we have not in the U.S. had a huge high-profile celebrity or, you know, famous person get prosecuted under this, as some other countries have had, uh, but we will. This is a growing, growing issue that um, uh, I think people should be very, very concerned about. 
Thanks do you think Trump, that is, um, do you think that that's one reason, like we won't actually take this serious and really make a movement to end all this stigmatizing policy and all that? Do you think that we'll need somebody who becomes famous, who contracts this disease, who goes through this, in order for it to be, you know, back in the headlines and for people to realize that this is something that is taking like human rights away from people? Everybody has the the right to have sex. Well, I don't know that we need that. You know, I know that as there are more cases and there's more attention paid to this, you know, the, a lot of the public's perception on these uh, cases is shaped around cases that were, uh, you know, are, uh, are people who are very often mentally ill and are, you know, incredibly uh, reckless uh, and are often victims of the hysterical uh, ambitious prosecutors and hysterical media and ambitious prosecutors that become very, you know, political in the media, you know, and, and um, uh, that's what kind of shaped people's impression around us. Um, and that's not the, 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 the typical of the prosecutions anymore. And let me be clear, someone who intends to harm someone else, that should be prosecuted. Anytime right. somebody intends to harm someone, that should be prosecuted. But the intent to transmit is so rare, it is so, so, so rare, that that's, you know, you're talking about the, the real outlier exception rather than what is typical in these cases. You know, the, when somebody's using a condom, for example, uh, that's certainly not showing any intent to transmit. Uh, so, right. Let me um, go over to the phone lines. We do have a caller sitting on the line uh, to speak with you, Sean. So please welcome area code eight three two. Welcome to the show. Well, good hey, welcome. Um, hey. It, it's uh, it's great to actually hear the author the beginning of, of pause because it pause was there back when I was diagnosed in '97 and uh, you can pretty much find it in every primary care health uh, place here in the Houston area. So it, it's great. It's a great comfort to even the newly diagnosed to have to be able to have a a common uh, point that they can read and and find out. Uh, where where they are in the world at their at that time, you know, and then for those of us that have been around for a while, we're living with this disease. It's all, it's also uh, gives us a chance to stay in line with what's going on. But my question for you, Sean, is uh, how closely are you watching um, ONAP and what's going on and, and this newly formed uh, Jeff Crowley uh, czar, uh, HIV AIDS czar and what he's doing for us and uh, what what what's taking place there? Sure. Um, well, to, to start with, uh, you know, I think very highly of Jeff Crowley, who the president appointed as, as uh, director of the Office of National AIDS Policy. He's also the president's advisor on disability-related issues. Uh, you know, Jeff was formerly associated with, uh, with NAPWA. He really has a deep understanding of these issues. So I have quite a bit of confidence in him. Um, there, you know, no one needs to be told what a difficult economic environment we're in, and the very, very, you know, hard choices that the government has to has to make. Um, so that is, um, you know, that is a real battle, and we've always had a battle of getting legislators and policy leaders to look at the the real economics and you know how effective, how cost effective it is to engage in real prevention work, you know, how, how much it saves when we avoid infections um, and how costly it is when we, when we fail to do that. Uh, I was, there was a group that was organized that was, there was a process for input into the development of the National HIV AIDS strategy. Um, I was not deeply involved in that. Um, it was a lot of well-meaning people and I think they improved the final outcome uh, significantly. Uh, I was very pleased that in the President's AIDS plan last summer, um, there were some areas where they showed quite remarkable leadership, and one of them was on this HIV criminalization issue. You know, we had for years, the CDC and NIH and other places just would not get involved in the criminalization issue. They, you know, they said, oh, no, no, we'll leave that to the states. We're not going to mess with that. And I argued that it was a federal issue because the statutes are in place in large part because of the original Ryan White Care Act, which required states demonstrate an ability to prosecute intentional, uh, what they called intentional transmission. 
uh, in order to qualify for funds. Uh, about half the states said, hey, we've got assault statutes, we've got public health statutes, we're cool, and the other half of the states went out and create, passed this sort of crazy patchwork of bizarre statutes that criminalize, you know, uh, you know, things like kissing and stuff like that. Uh, so we've been hearing from the CDC, so they weren't going to get into this issue. Well, then the President's Aid Strategy came out last summer and it included several paragraphs that were very, very important and made me really proud to have supported the President as strongly as I did. Um, that identified criminalization as an obstacle and um, and really directed uh, several federal agencies to look into that. And there, we're actually finding the uh, uh, relatively cooperative as we've launched this positive justice project with the Center for HIV Law and Policy um, to to uh, reveal HIV specific statutes around the country. So, in in certain areas of it, I think it actually has been quite innovative. Um, the fundamental issues uh, relate to to, uh, to to money and resources, and that is um, that's a, a challenge across the board in every area of the federal government. So uh, it's hard to say you're happy with what's being proposed because so many people are going to suffer from it, um, uh, and that's you know why the activism at the grassroots level around things like the ADAP program. Uh, has become so so much more important in the last few years. During a lot of the Bush administration, it kind of didn't matter, you know, because they were so hardened and so deaf to us. Uh, but with this administration, it really does matter what we are doing and the calls that we're making and the emails that we're sending. Thanks for the thanks for the um, the question. Um, we also have another question from coming out of the uh, out of the chat room. And it is from Zephyr Foundation, and she says, Sean, in your opinion, does the political um, – oh, it, uh, I just had it. <laughs> and somebody just updated the darn thing. Um, <laughs> I just had it. In your opinion – now, where did it go? Okay. In your opinion, does the political will exist to develop a vaccine for HIV, therapeutic or preventative? Well – there certainly has been an awful lot of money spent uh, on a, a preventive vaccine. Um, uh, the, you know, I, I, you know, felt like a therapeutic vaccine has been a very neglected stepchild to the process. Um, is the political will there or not? I can't really say. Um, you know, I think something that is. Um, going to focus more attention and more urgency on a vaccine. Uh, uh, you know, the, the really powerful and terrifying economics of providing antiretroviral treatment to people uh, around the world with HIV. We've now put several million people on antiretroviral treatment through PEPFAR, the President's AIDS, uh, Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, and the Global Fund. And now, you know, the major funders of that are backing away from it. Uh, what is that going to mean? to people who've been on treatment and have returned to somewhat normal lives or being able to at least manage their HIV infection and now getting cut off from treatment, uh, this is, 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 you know, a huge issue. We're having a little bit in the U.S. with the ADAC programs, you know, a little bit when we're talking about a few thousand people on waiting lists. Certainly is pretty important in each of their lives. But when you talk globally and you're looking at millions of people on treatment, having the future of that continued treatment in uh, potential jeopardy, um, that I think may um, create even more uh, urgency and attention on creation of a vaccine. You know, there has been progress made, but the problem is that, you know, every little step forward, it, it's surrounded by so much hype because there are various entities competing for the, the R&D dollars and, you know, the government funding and so on, and so they're all, you know, very desperate to show their progress and their promise. Um, and, you know, those of us who kind of follow it in the, in the media, you get, like, excited, and then you get let down, like nothing comes from it. Then you get excited, you get let down. And after a while, it's tougher and tougher to get excited or to have that confidence in it. Um, but I do think that the progress has been made and it will continue to be, and I think that the, the situation with providing treatment for people is going to intensify that effort. Great. Right. Um, real quick, I just want to open the phone lines. If you would like to call in and speak to Sean, if you have a question or a comment, you can reach us at 347-215-9442, and we'll be happy to take that uh, phone call. 
Uh, Sean, one of the questions I had uh, listed um, on the Pause AM Network was they wanted to know how could somebody in Texas be um, sent to, you know, sentenced to 35 years for spitting on a cop when it is a known fact that you can't get HIV through saliva? Um, well, uh, he's not the only one who's been convicted of that. Um, right. Uh, you know, Gregory Smith was in uh, was in prison in New Jersey, and he was actually set to be released. He was within a few months of his release. I think he was in prison on a burglary charge or something. And he got in a scuffle with a guard, and the guard claims that Jeffrey spit on, or excuse me, Gregory spit on him and bit him. Uh, Gregory always denied it, and I happen to believe his denials. But he was sentenced to an additional 25 years in prison, and he ultimately died in jail in in in, uh, in New Jersey um, for what was a you know a scuffle with a guard. Um, uh, you know, this is these cases have not been, had to do with the real science involved. They are not about dealing with rational facts and and about real risk. They are dealing with hysteria and people's fears and ignorance. Um, in some cases. And if any of your readers are involved with um, uh, uh, with uh, labor organizations and want to help on this, I would really urge them to email me. In some states, uh, the uh, public employee unions, uh, particularly the first responders, you know, the uh, police officers and uh, uh, and uh, uh, fire personnel and emergency responders, um, they have driven these statutes because of their own fear of you know, coming into an emergency situation and somebody failing to disclose to them or whatever. Um, of course, you know, most people would argue that they should be using universal precautions in every case and, you know, assuming that those kinds of risks are potentially present. Um, but legislators in state capitals, and, you know, if anyone's ever spent much time in some of these state capitals, as I have, you know, that you can get a real uh, you know, sort of unusual dynamics sometimes, and, and laws are passed that aren't very well informed, and that are you know very much influenced by individual uh, 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 lobbies. Um, so I, I think that these uh, public employee unions are going to be important to educate them and get them on our side in dealing with the repeal of some of these statutes. And if people want to um, help you out with that, how I mean, can they contact you? Uh, uh, Sean.strub at gmail.com. Okay. Uh, so I, people know well, Sean.com. Uh, and in addition to that, going back to the, they're asking about the spitting uh, specifically, and this all goes to the fundamental misperceptions about the real risks and routes of HIV transmission. Um, you know, those of us who've been working in this field for so long, you know, tend to know it pretty well. But we forget that you know we had quite an education that has not been ongoing. You know when I speak on college campuses, I'm often speaking to young people who only had abstinence uh, only education in, in high school. They've never really. Literally, I, I spoke to one group, and most of the, the kids there who had had any HIV education at all, they said it was one class one day uh, in their you know whatever their 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 whatever they had to pass for sex education. It's remarkably uh, uninformed, um, and then of course you have the broader public's, you know, continuing uh, uh, misperceptions about it. In some things, the fear of contagion has lessened, of casual contagion. The numbers showing the percentage of people who think you can get it from sharing a glass or from a toilet seat, or who wouldn't want somebody with HIV, you know, serving them food in a restaurant. Those numbers have come down from where they were 20 years ago. Uh, or 25 years ago, but not as much as you'd think. Uh, they are still, you know, 15, 20, 30 percent numbers on those of the of the broader population that has these just totally irrational beliefs about how HIV is transmitted. Right. You know, Sean, you're one of um, the people who we quote unquote call a long-term survivor. You've been living um, with HIV for over 30 years now. Um, what are your thoughts on these fear-based tactics similar to the ones that was just uh, released out of New York um, where they showed the bones breaking, the angel cancer, and all that kind of thing, when they instill that fear? Do you feel that they work at all? Um, well, there's actually there's not a lot of research on them, but there is some very important and, uh, and I found persuasive research showing that fear-based tactics can work 
to get people to take a single short-term action. So fear-based tactics can work to get people tested. Uh, however, they'll disproportionately get people who are at less risk tested. They don't necessarily work getting the people at the most risk. For behavioral change, as opposed to taking a single action like getting tested, for long-term behavioral change, I have seen no evidence that fear-based tactics are effective, and I've seen a lot of evidence that they are counterproductive. And my fear, I've written about this on my blog at pause.com, um, my concern about the New York City Department of Health ads is that they um, uh, are going to actually add to um, uh, transmission of HIV rather than help slow it down. They, you know, make people who are sort of frustrated and angry, young people, they don't care, they think it's nothing, you just take a pill, they're not adequately concerned. Um, so the people who, you know, have those beliefs and that frustration, which, which I think a lot of us, you know, sort of feel at times that, that people aren't paying attention, it makes them feel good because they see that it's scary and it will shock people and it will wake them up. Um, but I don't think that they're understanding how it can further alienate uh, and shame the young gay men at greatest risk. Um, so uh, there's a whole uh, science around what's called loss-framed or gain-framed messaging. Loss-framed is messaging that talks about what you're going to lose, right? You're going to get sick, you're going to get anal cancer, you're going to get this. Uh, gain-framed messaging is around what you're going to gain. So if you are safe in your sexual behaviors, you're going to gain a certain confidence, a, um, a, a sense of, you know, of doing the right thing for yourself and your partners and protecting them and as well as uh, better health and so on. Um, and I think that the New York City Department of Health Advertising is, uh, is crude. Uh, I think it is a video hate crime against uh, gay men, and particularly against uh, gay men with HIV. Uh, and so I'm, I was pretty outraged by it. Understood. Now, they, spent, they spent three quarters of a million dollars. And for any of your viewers who, or listeners who haven't seen these ads, uh, you know, they have these beautiful boys. I, I wrote that they look like characters from Lost or something, looking mournful and doleful and, you know, uh, frightened and uh, and then it talks about conditions that uh, some people with HIV get, like osteoporosis, and it shows an X-ray with bone snapping. Well, that's real. You know, I have it. It's very severe in my case, and so that's my biggest sort of, you know, problem, the side effect of, of treatment. Um, and um, mental issues, mental health issues, uh, and, uh, and anal cancers. And it shows a close-up photograph of a man's uh, anus, encrusted with cancerous lesions. Um, it, is, you know, it is really an unpleasant, shocking image. And, uh, you know, I wrote that if this was a message around, say, HPV or, or something else, they would not dream, would not even consider showing uh, a woman's vagina similarly diseased. Right. And I that this speaks to a really fundamental problem of the lack of respect for gay men's sexuality, for the anus as a sex organ. Dr. Joseph Sonnenbein said early on in the epidemic, uh, something very important that sounded radical at the time, uh, was that uh, the anus is a sex organ, and it needs to be uh, given the same respect that we give to the penis and the vagina. Uh, and until we do that, uh, we are going to continue to be stigmatizing uh, anal sex and gay men, and uh, and contributing to HIV transmission as well as other STDs. Wow. We are down to our last six minutes or so of of the show, and I have to say that this has been a really great hour or fifty minutes or so that we spent with you, Sean. And um, and we we always ask um. At the tail end of every interview, um, a one question, and that question is, what advice do you have for newly diagnosed um, individuals? Um, get with some other people who have been positive and dealing with it for a longer period of time, whether in person or connecting you know, through POS.com or local support groups 
however it is. That's the most important thing is to find, because I found that people with HIV, you know, at Paz, we I said we would not have a party line. You know, I always thought to find people with very different ways of approaching their treatment. You know, early on we'd have a profile on one side with somebody who said AZT saved my life, and on the facing page it'd be, you know, AZT is a drain, it would kill all my friends, I would never take it. Um, right. And because that's the reality of people's experience out there, different things work for different people in different ways. And yet I find that people with HIV rarely, like, argue or fight over it when they're talking about it. They just sort of, like, share notes. Um, you know, many of my closest friends have taken treatment approaches radically different from my own. Uh, so the first advice is, is to uh, uh, get connected with some other people who are positive, uh, unless your CD4 cells are very low and you have some immediate urgent need to go on treatment, um, uh, I advise people to take a little bit of time to think about it. You know, if your CD4 cells are, uh, you know, well into the 200s or 300s, um, it, it is a concern, absolutely, but it is not as immediately urgent to go on treatment as it would be if they were below 200, for example. Uh, I find lots of people being diagnosed and they have CD4 count in four or five or 600, that basically they have a largely intact immune system. And the day they're being diagnosed, they're being put on treatment right away. Um, well, you know, not all those people need to be on treatment. Uh, uh, in fact, some uh, percentage of them have some uh, potentially even genetic protection that would lead them to be a slower progressor. Uh, and I don't think people should go on treatment until they're really ready to make a commitment to it. Um, uh, I find that when people are put on treatment before they're ready, they tend not to be as adherent to the treatment, and they sometimes can create more problems for themselves than facilitating resistant virus. So, uh, so the two messages are get hooked up with other people who are positive and get yourself informed before you make a treatment decision, um, uh, uh, assuming you're, you're, you're not in a real immediate urgent phase, meaning, you know, below 200 to 250. Great. Well, Sean, again, um, thank you so very much for taking time. And I believe you're on vacation right now, right? That's my I, I am, actually. But, uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a, so thank is, there's nothing I enjoy more than, than, you know, sharing the information I have and what I've learned and, and learning from others and talking about the epidemic. So this is no chore at all. It's an absolute oh. pleasure and honor oh. to, to be with you this evening. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking that hour out of out of pina coladas and banana um, <laughs> boys. Um, <laughs> so thank Thanks you again. And uh, God bless and and take care and I and I will be certainly keeping in touch with you a little bit more. So, thanks again. And Sean, you're okay. going to be at the Positive thanks. Living Conference, right? Uh, in Fort Walton Beach, right? Yes, you'll be there, is right? That, is, is that the one in Fort Walton Beach in a couple of weeks? Yep. Yes, it is. Yes, and I am so looking forward to that. I've never been to it. And, you know, that is one of the very largest gatherings of people with HIV. They have several hundred people with HIV there. You know, Michael Callan, uh, who was one of the real pioneers of the self-empowerment movement, wrote something one time, and he said, you know, there's something magic when a group of people with HIV get together, when, when just people with HIV, in terms of how they relate to each other, how they talk to each other, and, um, uh, and how they coalesce. So I am very much looking forward to... Um, um, to being at that conference for the first time. Yeah, it's going to be my first time, too. Well, good. Well, I look forward to seeing you there. If any of your listeners are in that area, I know some people from New Orleans are driving over for it. Um, uh, it's in Fort Walton Beach, and I think it is March uh, 10, 11, 12? Yep. Or 11, 12, 13? Something uh, like that. <laughs> yeah. cool. well, I look forward to meeting you then in person, Sean. Great. Thank you. I look forward to it as well. All right. You have a great night. Thank you so much. Thanks. And remember, folks, you can find more information on our guest, Sean Stroop, founder of Pause Magazine. You can actually go to his blog. Uh, you can go to www.blogs.pause.com backslash Sean, S-E-A-N, and you can go check out his blog there and leave some comments there. Don't forget to um, send us here. Um, on Blog Talk Radio and favorite our show so you can get reminders. We'll be here next week with our friend George Montgomery. 
um, our very own Paz Iyamar, who will be sharing his personal stories of what it was like to be in the Marines and receive an HIV diagnosis while in the Marines. So that should be a very interesting interview next week. And you can find more information on myself and the radio show at pazim.com. And Jeremy, we can find more information on the wonderful Jeremy Dunn at PositivelySpeaking.com. Um, and um, it was a great show. It was. You know, Sean is is amazing, and and I just I just he 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 just really is for the stuff that he has done over this last many many years. It's just fantastic. So we are down to our last four seconds, by the way. So all right. So have a great night, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.